Here's my dream smoothie right now. Please enlighten us about your dream smoothie. It would be like something with lots of banana, strawberry, avocado, um, mm. maybe some oh, maybe some mango, and a little bit of almond milk, and I would drink it for myself. <laughs> Wait, did you hear her? So, hi, my name is Augusta. My name's Eva. And this week on the Phenomena Podcast, we're going to be talking about Alistair Crowley. Let's do another yes, try. Yes, we're going to pronounce it Alistair Crowley, and I don't want to hear another word about it. I mean, how is how else would we say it? I believe that it's a Gaelic name that he chose for himself, and that it actually has four syllables, and that... The last name is Cruelly. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. Well, his given name was fucking Edward Alexander, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like Eliaster, Eli- but I think the correct way to pronounce it as an American is Alistair Crowley. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say Alistair Crowley, but if you as a yeah. listener feel the need to investigate the correct pronunciation of his name, there's many, many different YouTube videos with many different bald men talking, so. Exactly. Exactly. This is not bald men talking. This is the the opposite. (laughs) Yeah. So we teased this a little bit in a previous episode, but the reason we're going to be talking about Aleister Crowley and the reason this is a bonus episode and not a full-fledged episode is because he's not exactly a paranormalist. He's an occultist. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Or he was. I mean, he died in 1947. But mm-hmm. he was a super, super important, influential occultist, author. He wasn't a spiritualist. He wasn't part of the spiritualist mm-hmm. movement, as we've talked about in the past. Mm-hmm. He was like, he was really a mystic. And he brought together yes. a lot of non-Western mystic and occult traditions under the heading of bringing them to specifically England, but generally the Western world and trying to make the world more sort of magical and cult mystical, but also at times like evil and insane. I mean, he wasn't like, mm-hmm. he was not new age. He wasn't like a new age, California, take mushrooms and the world will be beautiful. <laughs> he no, was like, they called him 666, the antichrist. So complicated yeah. man. The wickedest man in the world. The wickedest man in the world. You want to start? Um, you want to start up top with some biography? Should we start there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, he was born to like a Christian fundamentalist family somewhere in England. Um, I can look Warwickshire. Um, and he actually studied <laughs> mountaineering, and he was like a mountaineer and a poet. Um, uh, by, uh, by trade, I guess. What, what is that called? By education? Yeah. I mean, he didn't really have a trade. He was from a wealthy manufacturing family. His yes. grandfather, yeah. I believe, made all of his money in, um, liquor. Oh, okay. But his dad, I guess, wouldn't I mean, spend cool any of the money because he believed that liquor was sinful. So they grew up a kind of weird... Right in like a weird pseudo poverty because his dad wouldn't spend any of the sin money because they were so evangelical. That is so strange. So his father died when he was pretty young. 
Um, and he like cites that as kind of a pivotal in his life. Um, and oftentimes occultists, um, just to sort of paint with a broad, paint with broad strokes or whatever, um, having a, a traumatic experience with death of a close loved one early in life, um, is something that points a lot of people in the direction of, uh, interest in contact with spirits. Um, so you couldn't say for sure that that's like why he was really into the occult, just that that's a very common thing. Another thing that traumatic death can do for a person is it really um, opens your eyes to criticize sort of to see like inconsistencies sort of in like the teachings of Christianity, like the ideas that you could be like rewarded by being good and, and all these other things. And then it's like, or you can die randomly. Of, yeah some cancer that you have no idea how to understand in that time yeah time um, so he yeah exactly so he uh, he started really taking issue with the bible especially in school and then that's sort of when the thing that he's famous for started it's the thing that he's famous for is just doing whatever he wants which is sort <laughs> of like that was like the creed of his the the religion that he eventually founded um which sounds like super normal now but in 1898 or whatever is super weird yeah i mean i think it's important to emphasize right up front that when we say his parents were like evangelical or like fundamentalist the christian sect they were part of the plymouth brethren was mm -hmm. very um it came down really hard on him. It wasn't like they yes. were out preaching and he was home being ignored. It was like he wasn't allowed to play with other kids. He wasn't allowed to go have mm -hmm. fun. There was no world outside for him. He had to stay, mm -hmm. stay inside and do 12 hours of prayer a day. And mm -hmm. doctors believed that it was making him sick. Like He was a sickly, ill-tempered, ill boy. And mm -hmm. he... It was like the life of prayer that made him sick. So just not to speculate about a dead person's uh, psychology, but in some of his writing, he's alluded to like, this is what turned me against Christianity and towards mm -hmm. mysticism. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, the great beast, the unholy monster of the apocalypse, Theron 666, those names that he's called came from his mother, <laughs> who called him that. <laughs> she believed him to be a spoiled and ungrateful child. And it's interesting because... Actually, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit more to his teachings, um, and then we'll come back and keep talking about his life. But um, to your point of his mother uh, calling him these sort of like devilish names, he frequently throughout his life uh, and in his writings and, and in person would say that he's not a Satanist. And even though the even though Satanic religion is very much inspired by his writings, the founders of Satanist religions um, overtly cite him as one of their influ as a, a significant influence of theirs. He would say that he was not a Satanist because he didn't believe in the world that was outlined by the Bible that included Satan and Jesus. But yet at the same time, perhaps in an effort to be somewhat shocking or in an effort to reclaim these like nasty things that were used to punish him throughout his life, he did refer to himself as the devil <laughs> in a lot of contexts. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, you were talking about um, his time to mountaineering. Oh, yeah, yeah, he went to Trinity College, Cambridge, I think. 
Yeah. So in yeah, so in school, that's when he started getting into poetry and mountain climbing and mountain climbing was a huge part of his spiritual development as well. Um, and I mean, yeah, that's no, <laughs> I don't know how much that needs explaining, but he did. He was a part of uh, a lot of actually really um, seminal expeditions to climb some mountains that had not previously been climbed by like white people. I think that was part of what brought him also to Eastern and Egyptian influences, um, which re- are reflected in the writings of his of, of his religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was one of the first Englishmen to make an attempt on K nine. Yes. So also very notable about Aleister Crowley, he was bisexual. I mean, that's another thing that distanced him from the church because that's completely unacceptable in the church. And a lot of the flavor of, I mean, (laughs) just to totally bring it to pop culture, the, the, the flippant and the flippant, like, deliberately shocking flavor of gay liberation that we're familiar with in contexts like Lil Nas X Montero music video <laughs> are also very much inspired by Crowley in his writings. Because while it was always, I mean, it was always true that Christians associated, um, like, homosexual whatever, homosexuality and bisexuality with, like, evilness and the devil and stuff like that, this idea where then it would be like, and what? Like, yes, and, like, yes, I am wicked and bisexual and, like, I do, I masturbate and I fuck and I smoke and I swear, uh, do what thou willst. Um, That's Crowley, too. Yeah, I mean, he's, his famous phrase do what thou wilt. Um, I mean, this is often attributed as like the foundational tenet of his religion and of his lifestyle Mm -hmm. and uh, his vibe. (laughs) And his whole vibe, really. Um, But he writes that in the Book of Law, which is the central Mm -hmm. sacred text of his religion, which was called Thelema. Thelema. And it was written, the book is written by dictation from him. I guess his wife, Rose, who was one of, I mean, he had multiple, he had many wives, um, but this was one of them. And <laughs> she wrote a little bit in there. Hmm? Yeah. Nothing. I'm not, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite little Alistair Crowley um, anecdotes or whatever is like that he, his wife actually, Rose, was not really that interested in the occult. Um, and he kind of got like sick of trying to get convince her and eventually he divorced her on grounds of his own adultery which I guess you can do (laughs) like usually when you sue for adultery super divorce on grounds of adultery it's because of the other person but he was like I need to file divorce because um I've been banging I've been bad baby lock me up yeah exactly he's like "Mm, lock me up (laughs) I've been very naughty Yeah, literally. He's like, I'm a very naughty boy. Lock me up. Yeah, he really was. He really was a very naughty boy. And and it's interesting also because, I mean, many things about it is interesting. But, like, one of his major influences is a guy called Alan Bennett. They were, like, contemporaries um, in a lot of ways. And uh, Bennett was instrumental in um, 
Crowley's development in occult occultism, but also was instrumental in uh, like the new in the like 20th century wave of like Buddhism becoming really popular in the West. Yeah, Tibetan like Buddhism. it's the same guy. Like they were they were kind of running parallel at the same time. So it's interesting to see like the history of I mean, there's all, all sorts of people doing all sorts of weird shit in religion all the time everywhere. But it's kind of cool to see how like America kind of couldn't have gotten its like peace and love phase without first having Aleister Crowley which is like totally. kind of crazy because they're so different yeah I mean he brought a lot of uh, what we really I mean ignorantly call eastern magics to mm-hmm. the west he was into tarot he was into yoga he's like one of the big people who brought yoga over Kabbalah he was into um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was really into sex magic. Uh, a lot of that came yes. from his time in the Golden Dawn. Do you think we should touch on a little bit? Yes. This is not, for the record, the fascist Greek group, the Greek nationalist group, the Golden Dawn. <laughs> that came later. <laughs> Whoa. I'm not familiar with that, but that's interesting. This is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. It's a sort of secret society which was founded in 1888 and was they claimed that they transmitted us like a particular kind of um, like mysticism or cabalism and Mm -hmm. Crowley joined in 98. He had a lot of beef with these people (laughs) as much as he also thrives. He beefed with WB Yates, which I think is like (laughs) truly iconic. Yeah. WB Yates described him as in, what was it? Indescribably mad, which I'm just obsessed with. I think part of that is because the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was a, like you said, it was a secret society. So it really was, I mean, it wasn't accessible. It was like the Illuminati, you know what I mean? So like um, it was famous people and rich people and influential people and educated people. So in that way where it's kind of like, wait, how do those two famous people know each other? Sometimes like this is one of the, this is an early iteration of that because it's sort of, just at the time where people who are prominent in a lot of different fields can really start connecting um, in a way that wasn't totally possible previously. Yeah, we're also entering a time of um, kind of consumer orientalism reaching the individual instead of just luxury markets and mass, like now mass markets have access to that form of colonial trade. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of scholars would, I mean, at least in my research, view this, not him specifically, though he's obviously part of this, but this whole wave of, of lifestyle importation, like what becomes reduced essentially to lifestyle importation. Obviously for him, it was like an incredibly... I mean, it's interesting because, right, like this man was obviously, you know, rode that line of psych- like insane to genius that a lot of people of this yes. era were able to ride. Um, and I mean, it's still attributed to people today. But what comes out of what he did? So like for him, it wasn't a lifestyle importation. I mean, my man was was living it. <laughs> he was doing yeah, sex yeah. magic rituals. Yeah. Like he wasn't going to yoga and then getting a latte. I don't mean to... I don't mean to reduce the degree to which his entire life was the pursuit of actual believed magic, but Mm -hmm. the things that he 
dabbled in that have become mainstream to the point of banality in America, banality, I guess banality, uh, in America and, and certainly in England too. I mean, most of this, you know, his, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, he was in the London temple, I think caught on because of that wave. Like he was able to, Mm -hmm. timing wise, it really synced up with a rising purchasing power, the waning of the British Empire, a rise in lifestyle as opposed mm. to um, actual political power. Now you just have mm-hmm. purchasing power. Anyway, all that is uh, materialist speculation. We don't need to go into it too deeply. but Right, but all of that's happening in this moment. Of right. These things are coming together to form the lifestyle industry, yes. which I don't think Aleister Crowley would have liked. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. I think he would have been horrified by it. And it's obviously not his intention. I mean, I think part of what you see again and again in his life, and this is, I mean, this is what happened in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, right? Like he -hmm. joined, Yates thought that he was insane. There was a guy, Samuel Mathers, Mathers, one of the order's founders who loved him and kind of took him under his wing um, but mm-hmm. a lot of people in the order thought that Crowley was insane <laughs> and tried to yeah. make, to boot him out. And eventually there was like this whole scuffle where he like locked the doors to the temple and people couldn't get in. And he like sat and laughed at them. Like he has real power, like, ish, authority issues, deep, deep, deep. Yes. I mean, that is the core foundation of his philosophy. Do what you will. It's, it's a hedonistic self-advancement, but it's also an anti-authority directive. And I yes. think that uh, the sort of consumer culture is not an anti-authority. It's a very pro-authority no. perspective, yeah. which you would hate. And the other thing that made Crowley's efforts and his teaching so distinct, and another reason why he didn't fit well in the Golden Dawn or in any other really like mystic or occult society, was that he really cut out there's an attitude of magic that's held by a lot of people that it's like a mystery or that it's like unknown or that it's like Mm -hmm. somehow happening but like Aleister Crowley really had no time for that Aleister Crowley had no like he was never using magic there was no metaphorical aspect of his magic there was no indirectness there was no I mean, he was really, truly practicing authentic or in his from his perspective, practicing authentic magic, which is to say, acting on one thing to act on another thing. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any it wasn't the fucking secret. Right. It wasn't manifesting like he literally was like, OK, like if I fuck this guy in the ass while we're in the middle of like a circle of ashes um, of a burned like virginal lamb, like that really will uh, enable me to speak with the spirit of Horus. Like, like 0% I will be enlightened or whatever. Like 100% two plus two is four. These, this is how you do magic. Very practical. Yeah. There was no, it wasn't, we're experimenting with the space of possibility. I'm trying to believe it was like, I believe, how do I find it? Exactly. And that was not, what everybody else sitting in an armchair wanted to do. He was like, okay, I want to go to the top of the mountain and like hold my breath until I pass out and like see God. And they were like, "Mm, 
Yeah, yeah. When he got kicked out of the Golden Dawn or, you know, left of his own accord, yeah. depending on who you ask, he decided Yay. that he was going to independently advance through the magical levels that they had set out. So, like, they had set out internally right. all these levels of magical advancement. And he was like, well, I'm just going to fuck you guys. I'm doing it on my own. So he mm-hmm. just went. <laughs> mm-hmm. He just went to K2, tried to summit it practiced Hatha yoga, did big game hunting, married a Mm -hmm. girl named Rose. They like entered trances together in Cairo and did supernatural communications, produced a bunch of crazy books. Right. That's when he first made contact with the, the envoy of Horus, whose name I don't remember, but I definitely wrote down somewhere. I think. Hor Parkrat or Heru Raha or I was, mm. depending on which iteration of it that you. So, and that's when he wrote the Book of the Law. Um, that was 190 something. It was all about how he was going to be part of ushering in a new like era of humanity, and that would be the eon of Horus. Yes, that's spelled A E O N. This is 1904, and. The book of the law, the law refers to what he calls the law of the lemma, which is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, right? So we've been referencing that, but like that is the pronouncement itself. And that's not, I mean, it is his law because he wrote it, but it's supposedly relayed from an Egyptian goddess. Um, And a couple sources were key to note that actually that exact tenet had been given in an ancient famous Egyptian story that predated Crowley. So Again, mm-hmm. he is taking this and bringing it. He, he's sort of acting as a catalyzing agent to bring these things together under... I mean, it, it almost takes... It, it kind of returns to what we've been talking about with this specific era of the crossover of science and magic. Like, it reminds me of that. Obviously, he had no bent towards the scientific method and no interest in it, but it is that sort mm-hmm. of mindset of, like, I will act as the catalyzing agent for this, like, the right. seeking of truth and the kind of... Like, I'm going to pick up a bunch of rocks and put them in a rock polisher, but, like, I'm going to be the one who finds the right rocks and puts them in and makes them beautiful. Like, he he's sort of the catalyzing agent for bringing together all these forms and different right. aspects of magic to create something new. Yeah, and, and I think that's another thing that differentiates him from the later people who were inspired by him and uh, wrote about, like, the Satanists who were inspired by him is that while we informed by our current religious political context might see do what thou wilt as like inherently chaotic, it wasn't chaos magic. Chaos magic is very much inspired by his writings, like the chaos magic we know today, but he wasn't doing chaos magic. He really had, he really was seeking a method. Like you said, like he was going out there and he was going to find the method Um, And he was going to keep trying to find it until he could get it exactly right. And Mm -hmm. that's something that he learned from Alan Bennett, who I mentioned earlier, um, who was very, um, who was very prominent in the teachings of ritual. So ritual magic is most magic. Uh, It's confusing, but like ritual magic is like almost similar to the idea of the scientific method where it's like there is a formula with a predictable semi-predictable outcome that you can follow yeah it's steps so he wrote that book uh then he wrote the psychology of hashish that was 1909 um which is like kind of a classic another 
hugely influential essay now, though it wasn't necessarily hugely influential then, but like the idea of like using drugs as a, as a, like to facilitate mysticism, Mm -hmm. which, oh, I guess I should say, okay, so mysticism or mystic, like it's sometimes hard to keep track of like some of the terms and like, okay, what's the difference between like mysticism and occultism and blah, blah, blah. Mysticism is specifically the idea that you can alter your own state in a certain way to be able to communicate with God or with spirits, but usually with God. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so he he sort of brought, while we know there's a lot of different traditions that use drugs like as a way to facilitate mystic experiences, ayahuasca, um, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, that wasn't I mean, that's not something that's popular in Western religion. So that was, um, this is, I sound dumb, but you know what I mean? This is a big no, deal. No, I mean, it doesn't, I, I get what you're saying. It's not, I think that mm, to your point the about mysticism, mysticism refers to the mystic, which is the person who is able to move somewhat between the worlds, the world mm-hmm. of the human and the living and the mortal and the world of the divine and mm-hmm. drugs are used as a facilitation agent for that movement, mm-hmm. right? So that's part of what ayahuasca can be used for. Um, some of the professors we worked with at school were very involved in this research. Um, mm-hmm. In South America, especially in like the 70s and 80s, yes. that was big in anthropology. Uh, I'm not an expert in that at all, but... And I'm not an expert in <laughs> the Christian church, for sure not. But no, I understand those methods to be pretty opposed, except in some what are generally considered sects. Um, and I think that the use of the use of these drugs as a form of mysticism is just so flagrantly deviant, you know? Like of of mm. like so mm-hmm. many things he did, right? So right. obviously because and flagrantly was, deviant. Yeah, yeah. So then he got back to London. He found out he was being, well, he was he was out and about for a while. Mexico, Egypt. Um, again, this is the era of sort of like the. I know I say gentleman scholar a lot, but like you know what I'm talking about. Like he did have family money, and he also had donations. Though alternately throughout his life, he was wealthy and destitute. Um, I think he burned through that inheritance pretty quick. Yeah, exactly. Depending on where he was. So he came back to London and he was discovered he was being sued by the Golden Dawn because he had published a bunch of their like secrets. Oh, oh. And then his next big book. Sorry. His next big book. I just wrote down the books. I did such a bad job taking notes. His next big book was The Book of Lies, which is a very, very good book. Um, I have not read the whole thing because I cannot read. But if you... It's almost an epic poem. Like, it's very poetic writing. And then also there's, like, good scholarly elements. And then also, obviously, it's about, like, crazy shit. Um, so that's a good book um, that is probably hard to get through the whole thing. But here and there, you'll get snippets of it, and it's quite good. Then he was supposedly in the Freemasons and maybe a spy for the Germans, but a spy for England working in Germany or maybe working for the Germans during World War One, which is a super polemic part of his personal life and career. Um, and that was when he really started to get 
big bad press um, because he'd never had like amazing press. <laughs> uh, some of the things he did were minorly publicized for being bizarre. But mm-hmm. obviously the Golden Dawn was a secret society and a lot of the other societies he was operating within were secret societies at the upper echelons. There weren't necessarily like articles about it. But um, his whole life he identified as sympathetic to the plight of the Irish. Um, and I think he was um, to some degree Irish. Um, and he like that name that he adopted um, was the Gaelic version of his own name. His like given name was Alexander. So then... When Germany went to war with Britain, he was like, yeah, fuck Britain, go Ireland. (laughs) And he worked for a propaganda. He worked making propaganda to try to keep the U.S. out of World War One so that Ireland could like team up with Germany and get Irish independence. That obviously did not work out. Um, (laughs) But then people kind of started to like make these connections where they were like, oh, this guy who did this crazy publicity stunt, um, like in front of the Statue of Liberty, oh, he writes for a propaganda paper that is like anti England. Oh, wait, like, He's also, his other writings are like occult stuff. And then Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, even more than that, like his other writings are like about like getting high and being gay. And like, that's when he started to really earn the name, the wickedest man in the world, which I don't remember where that was published, but I should find out. Mm, Uh, British periodical. It was a guy named John Bull. Thank you. Okay. Mm -hmm. A guy named John Bull published an article about him calling him the wickedest man in the world. And he loved that (laughs) it was well just the reason that he got called the wickedest man in the world is because he moved to sicily and rented a farmhouse that he tried to turn into like an abbey and accepted Mm -hmm. disciples for his religion and then a like a young englishman mysteriously died there and his widow accused crowley of all kinds of of doing all kinds of insane things and there was Mm -hmm. an article written about it where the where this guy john bull or i guess john bull is the name of the paper the periodical they called him the wickedest man in the world and the italian government expelled him (laughs) i know and it's so interesting because it's like the wickedest man in the world if you heard us talking about if you heard us like oh we're gonna make a podcast episode about the about a guy who's famously known as the wickedest man in the world i mean that epithet stuck with him and he was an occultist you'd think like bodies upon bodies yeah murderer and it's really like maybe two or three people (laughs) like maybe two or three people died in a context that surrounded him maybe not even him murdering them so it's like it's very interesting how it just sort of unfurled and this idea of him as wicked he so accepted that and he was so I don't know it's just like this weird antithetical thing about him I mentioned it earlier in the episode where it's like he denounced all Christian structure and teaching But then he sort of started to slip into Mm. the shock value of referring to himself in that context as what is devilish. Mm. And he more so what is devious, I guess. So it's like it's hard. It's kind of hard to reconcile that with also his independent credibility and success as an occultist. Right. I don't know if it like it doesn't feel petty, but it's like it is 
it muddies his other really accomplished magical like works i guess how how do you mean like just because he worked so well outside the structure of christianity but he then had this not like and he was doing so much outside christianity and in the occult and in mysticism and other sort of like spiritual forms and magics and sex magic. And then he still had this, like, I almost think it's not separate from his belief system, but then he had like this naughty little boy complex. Yeah. Like you said, like he just like, then it was like, Oh, you're the devil. And he's like, "Mm, I am the devil. Am I in trouble? Yeah. Like, you know, it's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like, he was trying to leave behind the thing that he hated, but he actually yeah. ended up forming himself so much in opposition, in contradistinction to it. Yes. That it ended yes. up subsuming him in the end. Right. Totally. I mean, well, speaking of subsuming him, I mean, another naughty little boy thing, this was not his fault necessarily but he did he was sickly as you mentioned as a child and as an adult and at one point he was prescribed i believe um opiates for his asthma and he became very very much addicted to heroin um and on and off would try to i don't like any of the phrases that mean get rid of your heroin addiction but uh on and off he would try to stop using heroin and then eventually he had i guess not a change of heart but eventually he had another one of his like naughty little boy moments and he published a book called diary of a drug fiend which wasn't entirely autobiographical it was a novel Mm -hmm. um and like it was like burned and like never like it like they published one edition and then like a bunch of papers were like oh my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to British culture. Mm-hmm. And all the copies were burned. Uh, yeah, and then it went out of and print and I, he actually made money by mm-hmm. suing a bookseller who advertised that it had been suppressed. And he was like, no, it just went out of print. That's yeah. why. And he also, he sued a publisher who erroneously said that he, well, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't erroneous, but he claimed erroneously <laughs> said that he'd been doing black magic in Italy. Right. Uh, and right. none of his friends would come and testify him for him. And he was, yeah. he lost on both counts. And then right. this is another thing about him. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is what the, this is a, a British biography of him, which by the way, they have to have an official biography of him on this English biography website. And it's really funny because they clearly find him to be an embarrassment. Um, and it's written with such scorn. It's hilarious. Oh my God. But England is so embarrassed of him. They're like, yeah, he lived in New York. It's like for like four years. <laughs> like he was from England. <laughs> um, but yeah, he like, so, you know, he's penniless. He's like lost these trials. He's like alone. And then it's like a sympathetic woman offered to have his child and he accepted. Like we haven't even touched on this, but he's got all these kids and all these wives and all these ex-wives like. He's yeah. running around having babies out of wedlock. Like, that is... Yeah. Yes. Another thing that made him very wicked in 1904. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sex magic, dude. I mean, he really was 
he wrote the book literally and metaphorically on sex magic in English at least. He just and then he just kind of like died. I mean, not really. He tried to get his job back as a spy for the British Empire. Whoops, that was a weird way to say it. He, he tried to get his job back as a spy during World War II. And they were like, no, because at this point you're famous. <laughs> like, um, or for whatever so reason, they said no. like a thumb in a cape. I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. Even though he was also kind of a sex symbol. Um, he was a sex symbol in the literal sense of being a symbol of sex and sexual deviancy, deviousness. But he wasn't a sex symbol like for Reynolds. He died of, well heart congestion, bronchitis, side effects of heroin addiction in a residential yeah. hotel in Hastings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, later in life, he really, um, he was working on his autobiography or hagiography, hagiography. Um, so there's not as much of like exciting stuff that happened later in his life. But I mean, he kind of like, he wasn't obscure in the sense that his influence faded, his influence didn't fade, but he was no longer as mobile as he was in the first half of his life um, because of financial and physical restrictions. And so not as many of his like seminal texts or treatises um, were released in the second half of his life. I know we just sort of like glossed over the last like 30 years, but I mean. Yeah, he made a famous tarot card deck um, during that time. Mm Mm-hmm with a watercolor artist named Frida Harris, uh, who was actually the mm-hmm. wife of a liberal MP for Bethnal Green. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a cute tarot deck. You know, it's got some, got some interesting symbolism in it. Not my fave, but it's, it's enjoyable. Uh, and he, I don't know, he wrote some books. He wrote the Book of Thoth, which is his commentary on that tarot deck at the time. Um, but mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, mostly was taken up with the biography and with being sickly. And honestly, he had burned so many bridges by that point, I think. Bridges. Pool of donors had run dry (laughs) Um, from bad press and from giving everyone gonorrhea and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, some interesting Uh fun facts about him. One, he's on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Yes. which is he's, crazy. He's very influential in pop culture, despite how hideous he is. One of the yeah. most influential, hideous people of all time. <laughs> he's big in rock and roll. 60s mm-hmm. loved him. 70s loved him. Bowie totally. was big into him um, and used... Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Said Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And he supposedly is the one who gave Churchill his victory sign which yes. is like a magical gesture that was supposed to counteract the swastika because of course the swastika is appropriated from uh, India. From Buddhism. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he in fact says that when he was born, he was born with four ha- hairs on his chest in the shape of a swastika. But wow. that can neither be confirmed nor denied by outside sources. And in the forties, he had a really close follower named Jack Parsons who ended up being a founding father of the American space program. And like yeah. laid the groundwork for the Apollo Moon mission. So like yeah. he was so uh, influential. That's why I say like you almost can't under like you can't overstate how important he was. Like, and it sounds yeah. so like I don't want to sound like a I don't mean to sound like a fangirl because I actually like I'm not in love with all of his writing. He's like the least well known, most influ- like I don't know how to characterize it other than just like you his 
reach was so wide in a way that is like mm-hmm. hard to comprehend until you really read like someone else's book about him or something. And then you see like, oh my God, like this poet loved him. This poet loved him. This politician loved him. Like, you know, Winston Churchill was using his magical signs against fascism. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's yeah. crazy. You can trace a lot back to him. Um mm-hmm. That guy that I mentioned, Jack Parsons, who was the space mm-hmm. program guy, worked with L. Ron Hubbard, who founded Scientology. Yes. Yes. Like every <laughs> every yeah. psycho, every like wild out there modern occult movement slash like hedonistic drug pursuit is like a degree or two away from Crowley. It seems. Truly. Truly. And and another thing that I really think is important about Crowley's legacy is that despite his like almost political feuding back and forth with like Christian elements of the time, he really deliberately didn't have interest in settling the question of whether or not there is a God. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a lot of interpretations of his writing and some of them are, or you can interpret his writing as atheist. You can interpret it as polytheist, monotheist. Like there's a lot of different ways to interpret what he wrote because he was writing about practice. I mean, he was writing about like ritual, sex, magic. I think that paired with spiritualism of this idea of like interpersonal connection with spirits, like was a huge turning point for the American religious experience becoming a very personal personal one. Twin. Exactly. Like yoga, meditation, individual prayer. Yeah. And I mean, magic is really the human ability to affect the world in a way beyond, like it's the ability to tap into forces that then can have a profound effect on the world beyond what an individual is capable of on their own. Right. Like it assumes so much power in the individual. Right. That is largely due to these Eastern influences and these uh, um, non-Christian influences. And I want to say, I mean, I feel like it's obvious, but just for like the sake of saying it, like, obviously he did not invent these things. And like, this is something that would now probably be considered like appropriation or whatever. But I'm not saying he invented these things, but he brought them to America, which is the context of this podcast. I think that when we talk about appropriation, a lot of the, and we won't get into a whole thing about this, but I'll just say this really quickly. Like the concept of cultural appropriation on the individual level, as we think about it in the 21st century and like on the internet specifically and in pop culture, I think there's a lot of moral weight behind it and a lot of judgment about who can and cannot do various things. I think that when we say that Crowley was doing cultural appropriation, I mean that in the most literal sense of taking something and appropriating it. Exactly. Thank you. But thank you for that clarification because that is what I mean. mean, That's not to say that it doesn't also have moral weight that can be discussed, but I'm not, I'm not trying to cancel him. I'm not like like accusing him of something. When I say he was doing cultural appropriation, I am saying that he was taking what were primarily cultural practices and religious practices within other cultures and not within other subcultures within what you might consider to be a dominant culture, which is a lot of the time how it's considered in like the American context now. It was like, you're my neighbor, but you can't do that because this, this, and that. And there's merits to that debate. not trying to have that right now. Just saying he was going to places in which the overlap or interconnection though historically it existed and certainly right. like it's it you know zero. whatever was not ma- was not massive was not major 
Right. And he was taking things and plucking them wholesale, the bits and pieces he wanted, and returning to his context and inserting them, like appropriation right. in that sense. Exactly. Yeah. To to create a magical um, framework of, of personal magical practice. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how his beef with the Golden Dawn continued his whole life. <laughs> I know he could never get away because they were like some of the most powerful people. Yeah. It's such an aristocratic beef in such a funny way of like, like that element of it is so funny to me that it was like, on the one hand, it's like magic and sex and drugs and like wearing crazy outfits and like being bisexual and whatever, lighting candles but then on the other hand, it's like a bunch of British guys from manufacturing suing families suing each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. It's true. <laughs> yeah. It just yeah. feels so um, uh, authentic in that capacity. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, you could talk about Aleister Crowley for hours, but I, I feel pretty good about that summary. Um, do we have anything yeah, to say in I think, closing? I think that's a good first step on his. Maybe we'll read some of his books later and talk about them in other bonus apps. But yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, just a quick bonus app about Aleister Crowley. As a thank you to our listeners. Yeah, yeah by no means a fully in-depth covering of his entire life, but I think it's important to know how the change these changes happened coming from yeah like i like i said just from like sort of a mass type spiritual approach into these very personal experiences yeah look up his poetry it's pretty bad all right thank you guys for listening thank you guys so much have a lovely day yeah look up the book of lies it's good it's bad but but like the book of lies oh my god his autobiography though is an absolute shit show. I can't remember what it's called. It's called like The Complete Life of Alice Regret. Like it has kind of a boring name, but it's so bad. <laughs> um, but yeah. But uh but his book's about uh his writing about sex magic, if you're interested in sex magic, I mean that's